Hi, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Advanced Real Estate Talk with my co-host, Glenn and Darcy. Today, we will dive into uh, the comparison between investing in single-family houses and multifamily. Three of us have experience in real estate investing, of course, and some of us more into single families and others more into multifamilies. So that's, this is what we'll discuss today. So why don't we start with Glenn? Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was hoping that I could feed off of you guys. So I think um, before, in most cases, when you're comparing multifamily to single family, I always hear this argument all the time on other podcasts and they're comparing one house to a multifamily building and it's not a fair comparison, right? So let's just knock that out of the way. If we're going to do a comparison, let's do, you know, uh, an equivalent amount of houses or a little bit less. So houses tend to be more expensive than a unit. So like 10 houses to 15 unit building, something like that. Um, so that you're comparing, people always say the economies of scale that does, play in, right? There is economies of scale. All the toilets are the same. Usually the kitchens are the exact same size in a multifamily. There's a lot of things that you can do without actually going into the building to measure, right? <laughs> you, you know what it is. You can have backups you have, of stuff that you know is going to break. There's, there's all that stuff, right? So we, we understand that. Um, like, Ari, what do we want to, what do we want to tackle here? We want to tackle like um, reno times, like purchase prices. Like what, what are we thinking here for the comparison? Well, hey, our listeners I, should know, though, that you've done more houses this year than most guys do in a lifetime. You've flipped and rented, what, are we more than 20 houses just this year, correct? In 2020? Yeah, 2020, I think was 20, 20, yeah, I don't have my number up anymore, but 29 or 24 or something. No, it was 29. Was it 29? 29, I thought you had 29 Yeah, it was houses. 29, yeah. So just for listeners who are tuning in for the very first time, Glenn has flipped and rented 29 houses during COVID in 2020. So I'm just saying that's unfreaking believable. So yeah, from your lips to God's ears, this is a pro talking about. Okay. So <laughs> thank you. They need to know this though. No, no, come on. Expertise, you know, it's a different field of expertise. Flipping houses yeah. is a field of expertise. Uh, that's a way of doing burrs. Uh, Darcy does burrs with a multifamily. It's another yeah. set of skills. Um, You're not going to throw your creds out there, but I'm going to throw your creds out there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got I got an idea to, for tackling this. Let's okay. talk about what the what held me back from going into the multifamily, right? Because the way I like to do projects, I like to pick projects where I can renovate in six months, and then at six months I can sell or refinance or do something. That's the goal. I want a six month project. I don't want to be exposed to the market for a long period of time, and one of the big things, even as I was creeping into the duplexes and then the fourplexes, the renovations take longer, right? The time to turn your money takes longer. Um, it's not likely to go buy a hundred unit apartment building and refinance at the six month mark. The no. likelihood is that you haven't had time to go through and renovate or touch up every unit. Um, you haven't had the turnover times, um, and everything else. But there is some huge perks by doing that with the multifamily is that you're uh, actually making money through the renovation because <laughs> mm. usually you're renovating the, uh, the vacant units, right? Is where you usually start and then you keep turning them over as you go. Um, whereas if you're doing a single family flip, uh, unless it's like a fourplex or something, I'm going to rope in the fourplex under into the same thing. But in most cases, you're talking about a vacant building 
and you're renovating it. So you're having to hold carrying costs. There's no income coming in during that, for me, that six month period. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's one of the big things is, and the way I like to sell stuff to investors is, you know, hey, I can do a six month, you know, let's do some private money and I'll, I'll borrow it for six months or often now I ask for a year, even if I only need for six months, cause it takes the stress off, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, uh, that's just, that's one of the things is the, the turnover time. Like if you want to give them the return them their money, you might have to wait. Like usually, like I, I bought into a syndication a bunch of years ago, I think three years ago now. And uh, they're saying they're, the plan is to refinance at the three-year mark and then sell at the five-year mark, which it changes things, right? It, it changes um, investor mentality. Um, I can offer a lower commitment level. You know what I mean? But um, the returns, it's multifamily to single, or multifamily to single, it's a lot more work, what I do. Um, you can, for a, a slightly more effort, you could buy a hundred unit building than what I do running all my comps, all my evaluation, everything, and I'm buying one house or one fourplex, right? Uh, so by buying bigger, you can scale yourself. I don't know. Um, that, that's where I'm looking. Like it's, you only have so much time and you could in one same swoop pick up a whole pile of them compared to one house or one fourplex with this. Which same makes me think, um, this makes me think of one book in particular called, you know, the E-Myth Revisited, where he talks yes. about uh, investing, uh, not investing, but uh, creating businesses. And uh, I think you can create a business in multifamily and like you can create a business also in single families. Um, I haven't done it myself, but I can see because basically the, what he says in the book is uh, a lot of people work for a company and then decide they're going to work on their own, but they create themselves a new job and, and they have a nine to five, except now they have even further, even more responsibilities. And, but I, that's why I have a mentor. My mentor who has a business that he's been involved in with for 15 years, got me to read that book. And he's also helping me create a business and, and scale and uh, create uh, strat um, not, not only strategies, but also um, uh, structures and uh, so that you can hire people with zero experience and they have a manual and they just follow what's in the manual because you have proven time and time again that this is exactly what they need to do and then you hire people without experience so for my part when, when I think multifamily and and, um, and I like what you said you know compare 10 single family houses with one apartment building of 10 units um, well there are there are big there is a big economy of scale in terms of roof and uh, heating system uh, yeah so and also I, I like to talk about consider the tenants and that's another point we've dis discussed and that's something I've seen, you know, from my own experience, tenants that take on a house are way more uh, independent that, than tenants that, uh, that rent from you in an apartment building. The tenant that rents the house is going to, in Canada, clear the snow, um, mow the lawn and do mini repairs, or like repair a light bulb, fix a light bulb if, if, if need be. Whereas uh, in apartment buildings, sometimes, um, you know, you wonder where <laughs> uh, you, you really need to assist with every single thing. And it's, it's also, I've, I've seen it's important and that's more property management than anything else. 
it's important to check in with tenants to make sure that everything's okay because sometimes they won't even mention and they're just going to adapt and then in the end you realize oh wow this tenant is hasn't had a working sink in in, in several months and they just don't mention it because uh, they they find ways to to, to circumvent it <clears throat> well I, I you know speaking for the multi-res person here i don't want to be the bully on the block but big buildings yeah but glenn's point is well made you're you are kind of comparing apples to oranges um we have uh, around 500 suites in 19 buildings. So that's a scale that we're talking about. But we started with single units. I started with a single condo in a single building because that's what I could afford. $5,000 down on a $100,000 or an $83,000 suite, uh, which is legal closing fees. That's what it took. It, the threshold to get into a single, single unit is lower. It's a higher threshold to get into multi-res. You know, even in these depressed markets or some places like that, where we looked at last week, somewhere between six and 700,000, you can buy 16 units in Toledo, Ohio. That's incredible. You won't find that in Canada, uh, unless you're looking at places that only have uh, 300 people. And even then that's doubtful. I haven't found them. Um, but so this threshold to jump into a multi-res thing would be uh, quite a bit higher, all your costs, legal costs, insurance costs, uh, you're now, buying in a different commercial class than just insurance down the street from your guy. You're, you're considered a pro at this level. All the costs are higher. Every single one. Your accounting costs are higher. Um, all the expectations are higher. The, the upside is- The cash required, right? The cash, required, the cash required to buy these. So yeah. The money to buy some of these things, like um, yep. a lot of times, uh, you with, pull me up, tell me if I'm wrong but you're gonna need to pay insurance before you close. A lot of times the mortgage company will be like, we want proof of insurance. So it has to already be paid. So oh, you are the fees and the amount of money required. So you're, you're not some guy that's this is your first property because yeah. you're probably involved in raising some money. So you, you, and in order to raise some money, you probably have to have at least some kind of track record of even doing some single families or something in order for people to trust you enough to give you money. Well, we were just talking about that before we came to record this podcast. What's our time worth and how much time you're spent uh, talking to potential investors, explaining what you're doing um, uh, and whatever materials you're using to do that. If you're a marketing heavy person, I'm not, it's a personal conversation because for me, I believe all money is very personal. So they're going to look me in the eye. I'm going to look them in the eye and we're going to talk about what I'm going to do for them. That's how it works for me. That's, That's how I do I it too. I don't have, I don't do the marketing material. I started building that, but it's like, it, it's, Yeah. I, I, I think that sitting down on Zoom or whatever you like and just talking yeah. is way more powerful. Yeah, some, but all that stuff, the time costs and that's front loaded. And every step along the way, even your, you know, even your title insurance is made for single home is retail. And they're thinking of the risk involved with a single home. A bank can dispose of a single home over a weekend through a sale. A multi-res asset could take up a year and a half to, to close on. So banks are calculating the cost of holding something that fails, administrating it with a lawyer, working it through the courts, writing it off. All of that goes into their apprehension uh, or their appraisal of, of risk. Everything's elevated on it. That's not to say it's any more difficult. It's exactly the same process as buying a house. It's just all the stakes and costs are higher and by probably a factor of four or five is what you get. And you can't get in with 20 or 15%. You can't do that. You're going to think 30% of a $2 million building. So now they're talking like a $600,000 down payment. 
you may have to syndicate to do that. Now the legal and accounting on that gets similarly complicated and expensive. Yep. Um, but it is totally worth it. And here's the why. You're not traveling to 10 different sites to look at 10 different roofs and 10 different furnaces. You're going to one place, one roof, one boiler, you know, one front door entry system, one set of cameras, one manager. 8% of a, a you know, management runs around five and a half to eight, 9% plus rent up. Uh, you spread that over 15 units. Now it gets a little bit more manageable. And when the vacancy rate, if you have one single home, it's empty, it's 100% vacant. If you have a fourplex, now this is just math, you got one vacancy, it's 25% vacant. A 12plex, it's 8%. Uh, 20 units, it's only 5% vacant. You can pay your bills with one vacancy on a 20, 20 unit, oh, yeah. but you can't on a, on a single family home. It's just, you know, for me, well, I like that's the- why, That's stability. why I wanted to do the, the 10 houses to a 15 unit sort of comparison. Yeah, and, and if you pool those, yeah. but you gotta make sure all the same guys own them, because is my house vacant? Am I taking the hit for your stability? So yeah, then it becomes complicated legal arrangement for how you're pooling it and how you're accounting for your rent uh, rental pool. The time that this does play in exactly the way you said is the person I just interviewed on my podcast yesterday. They were buying one point four million dollar houses in Airbnb them. So what that that is one house compared to oh. thirty units, right? For that sort of price range, right? So yep. one to 30. So if they don't have, if COVID happens and they don't have, um, well, that would never happen. No, that would pandemic never happen. health pa pandemic that affects real estate. But there would be a hundred percent vacant. Whereas if you had that 30 unit building, there's a good likelihood, at least some of them are paying. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. And in fact, the truth is, uh, I and all my colleagues and everyone else is talking in multi-residential the pandemic just made clear to everyone in the world, there's not enough rental housing in the entire world. There's a housing crisis globally, whether you're in Nairobi or in, or in Paris or New York or in Saskatoon, there is not enough housing. And when they said to everyone, you have to go to your home in lockdown, there's not enough places. Yep. Yeah, Vegas, my vacancy rates went to zero in most of my markets. Um, rents have been held back. But I mean, this could have been profiteering because there's no places you could, if rents were allowed to just rise to the market, they would have been through the roof. And then probably people it would have been balancing people moving out and failures and everything else. So it's good that they limited that's so I'm not saying we should have been open, but it just highlights there's not enough places in the world right now to live. Yeah, multifamily fared pretty well during uh, the global pandemic yeah. we had. Yeah. And the other aspect of uh, when you compare houses and uh, multifamily is, um, when, when you go to appraise them, uh, so the, oh, determining the value for a, a house goes through comps. So you look at uh, similar houses, whereas right? with yeah. multifamily, it's it's the net operating income. So it's uh, you look at it like a business. So you look at income, expenses, the difference is net operating income. And that allows you to calculate the cap rate and then you know certain areas of certain cap rates and then using the cap rate and the noi you can calculate the value and uh, and that's what of darcy does and what's what syndicators do they buy at a certain for a certain at a certain value and they do value add that's the, basically the business plan is to add value to the property by doing renovations to it like we mentioned earlier and then you can increase uh, the net operating income decrease the increase the income decrease the expenses by improving the quality of the 
the, the rentals and that way increasing the value. And that's how you add the value to a, a multifamily. But Ari and Darcy, both of you, for these um, rent controlled areas, like does it make sense to do some of these renovations because you can only move the rent up so much and you can only move that rent up. You said you're at almost zero vacancy. So does it even make sense to do any renovations because you can only move it whatever the province is dictating. So, so usually the rent control would create more slumlords if you can't move the rent up. Usually the, the rent control, yeah. the way it works is uh, you can set the rent pretty much any level you want uh, when it's a new tenant, but uh, it's when you have a, the existing tenant year over year, you can only raise so much. And usually, you know, it has to do with inflation. 2021, there's going to be no increase in Ontario as far as I know allowed. <laughs> and but yeah, when you have a new tenant, that's when you, you, you know, yeah. you've done renovations to the unit and that's when you can charge a little bit more. Yeah, you can always reset to market with the changeover of tenants, except in some jurisdictions, say like Manitoba, where the rent control is attached to the address and the yeah. So what you have in Manitoba is a shitty pile of buildings because it's not worth fixing. It's yeah. not a, it's not a pro. Up, even on turnover. So yeah, no, some of them. That's in can, some provinces. It's not, it's not all not provinces. Not universal. Or no, no, not all. No. No, Alberta is a notable exception. At the termination of a lease, you can reset to market. You have to give them fair notice, but you can reset to market at the termination of a lease and they have a choice then whether to re-up or out. And that's why, you know, Alberta is a very attractive market for, yep. if you want an entry level thing, you've got to, you've got to look at single units if you have a limited budget. We all have a limited budget, but I mean, you got to match budget to product, right? Yeah. There are certain uh, investors out there that I'm thinking of one in particular who uh, tries to get people to start right away with investing in multifamily. And uh, so, you know, you buy his book, uh, go through his training. And, and basically one of the idea is to show that you have experience and they take no matter which, which field you have experience in, but you, you show that you have certain skills you've developed by wherever you've worked before and then you try you, show, you try to portray that as a, as a as a track record and then and then you try to raise capital to invest in syndications right away instead of starting with houses and that's also part of joe fairless story he started with single family homes and then now he's doing syndications on a big on a big scale but yeah it can be it can be a path you know starting with um, uh, single family homes and then move into more units and then and then transfer to syndication and it's a path that makes sense because uh, you know the, a lot of the skills you learn by investing in multifamily uh, in sorry in single family duplexes and dealing with tenants and uh, you know the, the purchase uh, the transaction all of this a lot of this is transferable to, to multifamily totally is yep. i learned in one for the other what's that strategies selling these properties when you do single family or small multis, you have a lot uh, more people to buy. Yeah. Like you got, you can sell it to a whole, like a person who's going to live in it. You can sell that to an investor. There's your, and when you're doing large multifamilies, it's not even just real estate investors. You're more sophisticated real estate investors and sophisticated real estate investors tend to want a deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is an expectation of aggregation that uh, they're probably not wholesale. as comfortable as some of these uh, invest uh, invested. Uh, I can't talk, but the people who are investors who are willing to buy it even at market value, that doesn't, yeah. you know, that, that's just not going to fly. <laughs> no. And, you know, when you're that big, you're establishing market value. We're in the process of selling 237 units in Southern Ontario. Uh, when we bought them, uh, you know, we could buy them by syndicating household owners with their HELOCs. 
um, when we sold, we knew it would be selling to an institutional purchaser. It's a $23.5 million sale. Commissions on there are half a million dollars. The process was you know, put out to 130 institutional investors. There's a non-disclosure agreements were signed by 36. We received six or eight offers, some more subsequent to it. And we picked through the offers and the best offer, we engaged with them and had a conversation. And that started last spring. It's taking almost 11 months before closing. And there's a lot of inspections, a lot of conversations, a lot of confirming value, confirming our financials through that time. It is a long, slow process. If you needed to get out of a multi-res because you had money needs elsewhere, your daughter's wedding or financial gambling debts, this ain't the way to get out. And I tell my investors, <laughs> it's not coming out fast and they're not going to get their money for at least months after this. And we got two years of financials and accounting to do after the sale. And then the general partners, we got to roll our money up into our hold co and then finally out to get our money. It will take us a year to get our money out. Our investors are going to take like four to five months. It'll be sometime in 2022 before we get our money out of the sale. It's slower, but you know, it was worth it. <laughs> if you can't see me right now, I am smiling. <laughs> <laughs> Last two more points. I'll do them really quick that I wrote down. Uh, utilities um usually on single family you can push that all on the tenants every single one of them mind you on a multi you're gonna have some boilers and some common things usually right yep. um and then the last thing uh deal availability for me i gotta find 30 deals a year mm -hmm. that's i don't have to find one deal i gotta find 30. that's, that's right. so much more yeah. work and if i go through 100 deals to find each one that means I got to go through like 3,000 deals. I'm so no, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but that's all. This makes me think of this book, you know, about uh, how to create systems so that you can uh, automate. You, can, you might be able to automate some of it uh, using uh, people like virtual assistants to help with those tasks. I think there is, a, there is room for, uh, to create a business around that. Yeah. But then you're still a sophisticated investor. You're not for your first one. I guess if we're talking about buying a lot of properties, though. But off the start, you're not going to hire a virtual assistant on your first property. You know, you're, you're, no. But you're you're you have a higher scale now. I have a higher scale now. Yes. Yeah. 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 I might look at a hundred to buy four. So that's my sort of thing. I'm looking at two to three a week, with some weeks off, to buy four. We're aiming to get four properties this year. So oh, that's no. that's my work rate. And I'm hoping my realtor is winnowing them down to just not sending me garbage. Send me stuff that I'd be really interested in that's got leverage or an opportunity in it. Yeah, that's the other aspect also that uh, your realtor starts to know you and what you're looking for. And then they bring you the deals that they know you're going to close on because they, they, want, they want closings too. And we're yeah. just about to wrap this up, but you just mentioned leverage. And I believe usually in this larger multifamily, the leverage rate is lower. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to be what? 65%? Yeah, we're, but, or you could assume, like yeah, right now oh, we're working yeah. on assuming someone else, assuming someone else's financing, and that gives us a lot of leverage. So we're looking to get into a property for about 12% down, which is unheard of. Wow. That would increase our rev leverage quite a bit. So that looks good, attractive to us. I mean, leverage too, vacancies. I can't, if I got a full building with low rents and I'm stuck for a year before I can increase those rents 1.2%, I don't want it. I want to buy vacancies that I can apply capital to and rent at market. So I'm looking for vacancies, but at a number that I can still get insurance and banking. So they won't, the insurance company won't, won't insure a building with 30% vacancy. 
just not enough eyes and people in the building to keep it safe. So that's a problem. So it's a your yeah balance between those things. That's what I'm looking for leverage, opportunity, good neighborhood, shady building. Oops, sorry, no swearing. Um, I don't think that's uh, a swear word. I think you're okay. Good. <laughs> All the farm boys out there, that's not a swear word. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So that's I'm looking at different levels, uh, different ways of leverage opportunity out of it. Financing, vacancies, opportunity, location, um, yeah, that kind of stuff. Awesome. We're running out of time. Right, I'll do this clockwatch symbol. Yeah, thank you, everybody. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Darcy. Thank you, Glenn. These were very Thanks, insightful, Larry. and uh, I think the the audience. I hope the audience will have learned a lot from uh, uh, listening and tuning in today. So, if you enjoy our show, please um, please uh, subscribe and leave us a review. Uh, we would really appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Bye, everybody.